Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is Thursday, November 2nd, 2023. Great to have you aboard the program here. As I mentioned yesterday, I, I'm doing the show this week from London in the United Kingdom, not uh, London, Ontario, or London, Kentucky, or London, Kiribati, none of those inferior Londons. I, I realize I'm like slighting my own city there, but uh, uh, nevertheless, we don't, uh, we, yeah, London, London, England's kind of a cool place, although it's a bit of a weird place in, in a bunch of ways. Anyway, going off on a uh, London-related tangent here, but I've been covering this week the ARC Forum, which took place here and was really a fantastic time. And I, I'm working on kind of a, a written piece that sums up a lot of my thoughts and observations about it, which you'll, uh, well, depending on if I can get my act together and get it done, you'll be able to read over the weekend or early next week. But nevertheless, I am going to do things a little bit differently on this show. Uh, this is pre-recorded. Normally, we try to do things live. It's more exciting and enjoyable, and we... Uh, don't get outdated necessarily by news that breaks while the show is in editing. So we love doing it live, but in this particular case, I am literally on a plane at this moment that you're watching this, unless something like terrible has happened, on my way to Calgary, Alberta, for the United Conservative Party AGM. So I thought it was a, a good opportunity to share with you a discussion I had a couple of weeks back with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Now, just to give you a little bit of context here, uh, Danielle Smith was the keynote speaker at True North Nation, which was uh, True North's first ever live and in-person event. We had it in Calgary, the heartland of uh, so many of the people that uh, value and support the work we do. Uh, it's not to say we don't uh, appreciate everyone else. We're hoping to take the show on the road and do True North Nations elsewhere. But we did our first one in Calgary, and we had uh, all sorts of uh, True North personalities and Friends of True North out, and we sent an invitation to the Premier of Alberta, who I've known for many years, as we used to work for the same company, and I had the privilege of guest hosting for her for uh, quite a while, and uh, she graciously accepted, and she came to give a, a bit of a talk. She gave a bit of the State of the Union, or State of the Province, if you will, to people, but she wanted to sit down and just take some questions and, and tie in her remarks and her contribution to some of the things that had been raised by audience members and in discussions and by panelists at True North Nation earlier in the day. Now, uh, we have not shared uh, footage of the events we had at True North Nation because we uh, let loose a little bit and we were focused more on putting a live show together and not uh, producing pre-recorded content. But we did get a recording of Danielle Smith's talk and of my sit-down with her. So I, I wanted to share that with you for the first time here today. Premier Danielle Smith, thank you. See, I never get the standing ovation. I need to come up when you are getting the standing ovation to bask in it. I gave the little bit of context earlier. You and I used to work together yes. in radio, and I had the great privilege of, of guest hosting for you, which was always uh, very challenging because you had very large shoes to fill on, on that slide. Well, it was always challenging when I came back after a week of Andrew Lawton hosting because I'd get nothing but texting, oh, why don't they have him instead of you? I really like that guy. <laughs> One of the things that... I, and I, I, again, my confession that I, I'm from Ontario, but I, I get a lot of reminders of the work you're doing in Ontario now because I'll be, 
you know, out in the world and I hear the radio ad telling me that Alberta's calling or <laughs> I was in Ottawa a couple of weeks ago and I see the truck driving around reminding lawmakers about uh, these energy regulations. Now, is the message sinking in? I, I mean, are Ontarians, which is I think where you've been targeting a lot of these efforts, certainly on the electricity stuff, is that message sinking into people? I can tell you the greatest engagement that we're having on our advertising campaign is from Toronto as well as uh, we we're getting also engagement from Eastern Canada, from uh, Vancouver, as well as, uh, of course, Calgary and Edmonton. Not every province is going to be as impacted as Alberta is, but we have 90% of our power grid is natural gas, and we have already paid the price. When the uh, NDP accelerated the phase out of coal, that cost our system billions of dollars that we're still paying off, in fact. There's, a three, uh, there's three plants that are just coming on stream in the new year that were based on that early phase out of coal. And now you've got the federal government leaping in saying, that's not good enough. We want you to phase those out too. Uh, one of the things that we have to, that I, I, I'm trying to get across is that Stephen Gibault, it's not just advisory. It's not just, let's see if we can attain it. He's using the criminal law power to say that if we do not achieve a net zero power grid by 2035, if we have natural gas on the grid that isn't abated to the level of 95%, those who are running those, those generators will go to jail or they'll face up to $10 million fines. So, so what, what uh, board of directors do you think is going to give any head of any power company the go-ahead to build a, a plant today knowing that that technology doesn't exist? It's not going to happen. And so that's the message that we're trying to get through. And it's a message that should be resonating across the country because we expect that our growth in the need for power is going to double over the, the next, uh, between now and 2050. And I know that Quebec thinks that it's gonna be easy to just bring on new hydroelectric power. I can tell you it's not. Look what happened in BC. They started trying to build Site C in 1954. It is not easy to bring on hydroelectric. Uh, small modular nuclear, while it's maybe promising technology, it's not there yet. And so every single province is going to face this energy crunch that we get. And the most reasonable thing to bring on, especially in an environment where we have such a, a great supply of natural gas is, is natural gas and work towards greater and greater emissions reductions. So that's why we're, we're be, we've been advocating across the province or across the country. Not only impacts us as well as uh, Saskatchewan, New, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick the most, but any other province wanting to bring new power on is going to be impacted too. One of the themes that's come up in our discussions today is this rule by experts, which mm -hmm. uh, Canadians and certainly Albertans have been subjected to for much of the last three years. And you know, we look at it in a media context, you know, media saying experts say, which I, you know well from your career in broadcasting, but governments have been far too deferential to this technocracy that exists. And I, I'm wondering how you found that as premier, you come in with a very decisive mandate, not just when you won the leadership, but then you won a, an election, you have a majority, but there's resistance from people that are supposed to be serving the government. Mm -hmm. Well, I found it interesting because the left always likes to quote experts when they want to take away your freedoms. But when I brought out the experts from the Alberta electric system operator to say the grid would fail, they say, oh, we don't believe that, right? So uh, so I, I've i always taken the approach, I remember when I was on the air, if there was a contentious issue, I'd bring somebody on and they'd say one view. And then I knew there was somebody who had the opposite view, I'd bring them on and our listeners would say, darn it, the expert you had on yesterday, they told us something different. How am I supposed to know? And it's that's the whole point, is that you have multi a multitude of different 
opinions on any given issue. And it's really up to us to hear all of the different sides and then to be able to make our best judgment. That's what I think democracy should be and that's what I think the role of the media should be. But there's a, a real problem that is, exists in all governments and I think it goes back to the system that we have of parliamentary accountability. So how it's supposed to work is if something in your ministry screws up, you as the minister take the fall, right? That's what's supposed to happen. So I'll tell you what happened instead. What has happened instead is all of the big decisions have been spun off to an agency, a board, a commission, a crown corporation, so that when somebody screws up, then the politicians can say, oh, that's them, that's not us. Is this across the board and all files? Across the board, all files. And so part of the reason why we had to take back power from Alberta Health Services is it started off being a way for us to, to have uh, some kind of coordinated decision-making around hospital services. Well, I can tell you that they started hiring away all of the experts that we had in our department, paying them more money, hollowing out the policy-making process, and they started making policy. So now, essentially, Alberta Health Services receives all the money, makes all of the policy, delivers service, contracts out to all of their competitors, which you can imagine how well that works, and then starts sliding into primary care, mental health and addiction, indigenous health, uh, and so and continuing care. And so we have now essentially lost control of about $18 billion of our overall budget. So that's why we have to start bringing some of that back. Now, it's tough to do because when things go wrong, now, now of course, you do have to be politically responsible for it. But I've always felt the accountability rests with the democratically elected people anyway, that uh, the, the people know that there's no difference between the two. They know that we have the power to make the changes. And so now we just have to make, have the courage to bring some of that back. You mentioned the media. Perhaps it's a loaded question, but do you believe the media is treating your government and you fairly? Well, let me take a, a, a straw poll. Do you, think, do you think the mainstream media treats our government fairly? <laughs> what, is, what is it that they don't get or refuse to get? I'll tell you the, the problem that the, the media has is they don't understand conversation and they don't understand the exchange of ideas. They get locked into a narrative and then for some reason they believe that they are the ones who it's their job to control the narrative and to discredit any alternative voices. And that's not how democracy is supposed to work. And so what has been delightful to watch with the alternative media that has developed is that uh, you guys play by a different set of rules. You, you believe that you have to get fair, accurate, balanced reporting out there, that you have to listen to all sides. And so I've been grateful that, that, you've, put, uh, that you've put that out there. But there's this new, you know, it's funny. I, I've tried to analyze what has happened to the media because I started in, in print a number of years ago. And we used to have a letters to the editor section. And it was a small letters to the editor section. If you ever wanna get a letter printed, stay under 200 words, try to stay away, you know, only make one pointed argument. It's very heavily curated. But what Twitter and other types of media do is it's like you've blown up the uh, letters to the editor section. And that's the only thing that matters. And now the media is looking at what trends on Facebook and what trends on Twitter to give, give guidance to them about what they should be writing in their news stories. I can tell you that never used to be the case. It never used to be the case when I was in print that the reporters would say, hey, what are people writing in on the letters to the editor section today? Because that's what my story is going to be. So that's the real problem, is everyone is chasing after the clicks because the more clicks you get, you can monetize that, or maybe you get more likes, and so they, 
that, uh, that maybe gives them more esteem within their profession, but it's not giving good information. It's not giving good journalism to, to the public, in my view. Find three tweets, and then people are saying yes, that, exactly. yeah. Exactly, exactly. I, I mean, this is, I guess, to talk about the relationship between Alberta and Ottawa, this is obviously a more tense relationship right now because you're not rolling over like yeah. the federal government would expect Alberta to do. There could be a conservative government in the future, and I, I know uh, Pierre Polyev uh, this week uh, spoke out against an Alberta pension plan. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious how you envision that relationship working. What would your model relationship be with a conservative government federally, let's say, which would be more willing to, I think, play ball with Alberta than the current government is? Well, here's what I, what I would say is I, I know that we had these same frustrations prior to the, federal, to the conservatives winning a majority government last time. And what I would say I observed happen in Alberta is we said, phew, isn't that great? All of our problems are taken care of. Now we don't have to worry about any, doing any additional advocacy. And guess what happened? Is that uh, as soon as Stephen Harper left office, not only did everything revert, it's even gone worse. And are we in any better position by having not taken the initiative to do some of the things to defend ourselves? I don't think we are. And so I, uh, I love Pierre Polyev. I think he's doing an amazing job. I hope everybody saw his interview where he was chewing the apple, <laughs> which is fantastic. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more media who get that same kind of treatment from him in the future. And maybe they'll be a little more careful in how they ask questions. But I still think that the uh, the, the best positioning for our federal counterparts is to be really supportive of the Constitution, really mindful of the division of powers, because I think that that's a message that resonates in Quebec as well as resonates here. If you want to fix health care or put in long-term care programming or, have, or fix pharmacare, run for provincial office. That is not the job of the federal government to do those things. And the federal government always does this. They come along and they dangle a few dollars in front of us, and they say, okay, we'll give you 10 cents on the dollar to run the program, but we're gonna tell you 100% of the way to run it. And everybody normally says yes. Well, we're not gonna say yes to those kinds of things. And I hope that uh, when we see a change in government, When we see a change in government, what I would love for Pierre to do is to start working on ways to, to give back some of those decision, that decision-making authority to the provinces. In Quebec, what they often do is when the federal government comes calling with a program, they say, yeah, we'll take your money, but we'll deliver the program our way. I would like to see if they want to partner with, with us on programs, they'll do the same thing, or maybe they'll transfer us tax points. Maybe one day the federal government will only start taxing us to the level that funds the areas of constitutional jurisdiction that they are responsible for, and they will leave those other uh, areas to us so that we can generate our own source revenue. That's the conversation I want to have with the federal government. And uh, as, for the, as for the pension, I know it's very controversial, but what I would say is that a firewall letter was written in 2001 by a lot of academics, including, at the time, Stephen Harper, and they said, what do we need to do to be more like Quebec? Collect our own taxes, have our own provincial police, manage our own immigration, and have our own pension system. So this conversation's been going on in our province for 25 years. It has. And, and we, I wanted, when we got the report done, it was done by Morneau Chappelle. So yes, that, that Morneau, Bill Morneau. So it wasn't like we were choosing somebody who we thought was in the bag for us. They looked at what the legislation says. 
And we have overpaid in this province $60 billion in our premiums. That has compounded over time, and so we are now entitled under their formula to, to $342 billion, which, yes, is 53% of the assets. And so we've asked the federal government, if you disagree with our calculation, tell us what you think the calculation should be. Or CPP, if you disagree, tell us what you think the calculation should be. And all they've come back with is uh, you know, slander and negativity, and they haven't answered that question. But we should be mindful of this, and I'm hoping the rest of the country is mindful of this. That is how every single federal program is set up. We always overpay and we always get back less than we put into the into the program. And I think that there's a, a time for us to say enough is enough, that we, we have to make sure Thank you. that we're keeping those dollars here. The last thing I'll ask you about is I, I realize our, our time has, has elapsed here, and we're so glad that you took a bit of extra time to sit down for this. Uh, that's come up today is the, the influence of unions. And I, I would broaden that to environmental NGOs. I know this was something your predecessor government took very seriously, but how real is that fear of, of you know, kind of this un disproportionate influence that NGOs and, and unions have in Alberta politics? Well, I don't, I don't know if Elections Alberta will ever do an investigation, but I, I can tell you that the, the fact that the, uh, the NDP, the unions and the media were all so dogpiled on us during the election. And every person I know said that they were seeing multitude of negative ads. You go onto YouTube and you would see dozens and dozens of ads. So we know what our spending limit is. I think they overspend by seven by sevenfold or more. And so that is not the way our legislation works, but I don't know if we'll see Elections Alberta do any investigation into it. But that's what happens is you're supposed to have a division between the party and the, and the PACs that are supporting them. I don't think that there was any of that. I think that you saw a lot of integration between the two. So we do have to be mindful that there is um, a, a very strong connection and they're going to use it to, to their advantage during an election campaign. What, what I would say is that I, I think that we have an opportunity to split the union support because if you're a blue collar worker and you work for any resource industry sector, why in the world would you support the NDP now? They're, they're talking about just transition. They, they're supporting the federal government's net zero agenda. They want to phase out fossil fuels. They're, they're actively supporting that, that kind of campaign. And so why would anybody who works in the resource extraction industry or pipeline industry or build some of those major con construction industrial projects, why would they support them? They should be with us. And that's something that I think the Ford government has done very well on in Ontario in saying that those blue collar, high paying jobs, they have more in common with their values, with the conservative movement than they do with the guys on the other side. And so I think we have the ability to leverage those relationships. And so I'll tell you one of the things I'm doing, uh, I'm going to, to Halifax in a couple of weeks because we have a council of the federation. The building trades has a demonstration project there where young people can go and spend 45 minutes at each of 18 stations, and by the time they've spent a day there, they'll know everything that it takes to build a house. And I thought, well, doesn't that work really well with what it is that we're trying to do? We're trying to get more young people into the trades, knowing that there's good careers that come out of working with your hands. Maybe we can have those kinds of relationships working with the building trades so that we can start fostering not only, I think, a better educated next generation that's going to be entrepreneurial, but also, I think, start uh, building some of those important ties with people who are doing some really important work for our, for our country. So public sector unions, I don't have the answer to that one yet, but, um, but that's, uh, that's also one of the reasons why we are looking at providing 
a lot more opportunity for people to to do charter hospitals in our environment. We now have 300,000 surgeries that we do. 60,000 of them are being done through chartered surgical centers. It just gives more opportunities for people who want to be in the caring professions to work for a private sector operator, a doctor, or a surgical team, rather than having to, to work under the, uh, the government-run system. So those are the, the charter schools the same way. I mean, the unions, the ATA are so, uh, hate the independent schools, the charter schools, and the, and the home schools because that gives more options to educators that are outside the realm of the, of the ATA. So I believe in competition. And so if we're able to provide more options for more people, I think that that will not only be good for the, the recipients of the service, but also those who want to work in those professions. So that, that's, what, that's what we're trying to do. That was Alberta Premier Danielle Smith got a standing ovation at the beginning and at the end of that, which I, I know was, uh, you don't often see politicians that are able to get that sort of a response, although uh, she was speaking to a, a friendlier crowd. But even so, in Alberta politics, we've seen time and time again how people will oust leaders they believe are underperforming. I mean, I had Jason Kenney on the show a number of times when he was Premier, including when he was fighting for his political life. But ultimately, this guy who came to Alberta politics as this great unifier ended up becoming a very divisive figure. Now, uh, you can unpack all the different reasons for that. Was it just COVID or were there other things? But uh, what's interesting here is that Danielle Smith was carried to victory in a wave. She was carried and I think had a lot of the people supporting her that were people that you know, very critical of lockdowns and vaccine mandates and all of that, very Alberta first in their approach to politics. Uh, one of those uh, groups was Take Back Alberta. Now, uh, the thing that is important to note there is that they've said, yeah, we want Danielle Smith in power, but we are also going to make some pretty serious uh, demands of this party to be to to remain accountable to its grassroots members. And if not, well, maybe we will have to do what we did with Jason Kenney. So, uh, that's an interesting bit of context. If you bring it to the UCP AGM coming this weekend, it starts Friday and it continues Saturday uh, because the party is going to be electing not just its governing executives, but it's going to be electing also uh, various policy proposals that are being put forward. And some of those are hot button issues that Danielle Smith has not really wanted to wade into, at least not like many of her supporters and members want her to, notably the gender issue which we saw pass by just a resounding margin when it was going before Conservative Party of Canada members federally at their con convention in Quebec City. And now we see a, a very similar and analogous uh, set of proposals being put forward in Alberta. And I think they're going to you know, pass with like 107% of the vote. I think it'll look like a North Korean election result. It'll be such a decisive margin. So that's a, a pretty clear mandate to a leader. So I think there's a cautionary tale in Alberta politics, which is that a leader can never uh, start leading without worrying about what the members think and what the base thinks. And I, I think that was uh, very important to note. And I think it was also very important. Danielle Smith took the time to speak to True North Nation because that's not something a lot of uh, leaders would have done. I mean, Aaron O'Toole, when he was federal conservative leader, was very accessible for interviews and he was running for the leadership. But once he was the leader, it was a lot harder to pin him down. And I think that's, again, a, a thing. You can tell a lot about someone by who they want to speak to. So uh, we're grateful to have had Danielle Smith there, grateful to get the chance to catch up with her, and uh, grateful again to all of those of you who came out to True North Nation 
And I'm going to keep touting it so that uh, when we do it again, you'll not want to miss the next one. So uh, that does it for me. If I see you in Calgary this weekend, do come over and say hello. Or I guess if you see me, because I wouldn't have seen you by that point if you're coming up. But uh, it's also like like 1 a.m. in London right now when I'm recording this. So uh, bear with me here. But uh, we'll see you there and back with regularly scheduled programming on Monday here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.